You're listening to Very Loose Women. This is out of its sheets, so it's just a... Good evening. Welcome to Very Loose Women on Resonance 104.4 FM. You are listening to Club Integral. If you uh, have just tuned in, we've also just been playing Christina Aguilera, Your Body. We're going to be with you for the next half an hour. Um, I'm Catherine Johnston and I'm one of your co-presenters joined by... Leo, hi, good evening. (laughs) Great, thank you. Uh, Today we have a special guest in the studio. We're really delighted to welcome Tristan Adams. Tristan, hi, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Uh, So Tristan is a theorist and writer studying a PhD at Goldsmiths College at the University of London. And why Tristan's here uh, today is because we've read his book, the Psychopath Factory, How Capitalism Organises Empathy. Um, we found it really fascinating and just really wanted to get you on, Tristan, to hear more about this. Um, but coming up, does anyone have a gripe of the week? So, Tristan, every week before we start the show, mm-hmm. we always say whether we have a particular gripe. Or it could be a mini I've celebration. I've got a mini celebration, and I'm going to steal this one because I'm sure that both of your mini celebrations are the same, which is the weather at the moment is so sunny. <laughs> I was walking around. I'm not wearing my huge coat at the moment. I'm wearing my my very stylish 80s wool jacket, which um, I very much enjoy wearing. And so I've just been kind of wandering around. Today I met um, one of my tutors from my MA um, outside the British Library, and we just went for a stroll instead of sitting in a room because it's so warm. I'm going to join you in that mini celebration because I feel that my mood and my attitude to my co-workers and my friends has actually lifted quite considerably. So maybe the weather also plays part in uh, being a psychopath or not. Have you considered that in your yeah, maybe thesis? Yeah, might be a difficult thesis to pitch, but um, spring is tangibly close, so that's good. Makes me happier at least. Any gripes? Um, probably just the, the overuse of the term so-called constantly. Yeah, that's <laughs> a and good gripe. If I hear that one, trigger. one more time, trigger. How do you feel about precipitate? That's okay. okay. That's okay. Good to know. <laughs> so to far. Know. <laughs> yeah. So we're here to talk about so-called psychopathy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so firstly... I think this is probably going to be the number one question that we have to address before we get into anything else. Tristan, what is a psychopath and how does your understanding of this term differ to maybe what people think a psychopath is and does? Okay, so my understanding differs in lots of different ways. Um, I've probably got an unusual definition of psychopathy. Firstly, I don't think there are real psychopaths. I think this is a character concept. I think it's wrong to apply that term to individuals. Um, the other big difference is I don't think it's got any bearing on criminality. I, I don't I don't think there's a correlation between a personality dis- disorder, if you believe in them, and criminal acts, crimes caused by social and economic trouble. It's not about the individual so much. Please I'm just going to highlight at this point that I think a lot of people might disagree with you. Yeah, I expect, on that, on that I expect point. people will. Mm. Um, but yeah, I do want to yeah. hear about the, the difference between psychopath and sociopath. Yeah, well, I, I think... We can all uh, sympathise with both character concepts, a psychopath and a sociopath. For me, a psychopath is somebody or, or, or type of character 
who performs one way, acts one way, but deep down, you know, internally, they'd really rather be doing something else. So they might be smiling and saying, oh, yes, you know, have a nice day, but they're thinking about something else. They're thinking about getting dinner. So it's that disjunct between behaviour and uh, inner intent, so inner desire. So that's a psychopath. I think, yeah, 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 that's a psychopath. I think that's what people find fascinating in film, the idea that somebody can be totally charming, they can be smooth, mm. but really you find out, okay, they're, you know, they want something else, they're bad. You can sympathise with psychopaths because if you've ever had to, uh, you know, work a tertiary job, you've had to kind of stand there and be nice and smile, but you don't really want to be standing there and you don't really want to be smiling. So... I think that's why you can sympathise with this character concept of a psychopath. Psychopath is, in, in many ways, the antithesis to a sociopath. The sociopath is somebody who doesn't curb their inner impulses, doesn't know when to just, you know, put a lid on it and smile nicely and, you know, be kind. Instead, they just do what they like, often falling foul of social codes. But I think, again, we can all sympathise with being a sociopath who probably said something wrong to the wrong person at some point mm. we've you know made a faux pas or whatever so that for me defines uh, sociopaths neither one is necessarily criminal and i think low-level social psychopathy and low-level awkward sociopathy are interesting and very relatable character concepts so just going back to that that definition and the question of whether this really is a, a condition whether it's um in inherited a genetic condition or a social condition um, you talked a bit about the common narratives about how maybe being a psychopath can lead someone to be a criminal mm -hmm. where does this idea of a diagnosis of being a psychopath or a sociopath come from is is did you look at the history of that in your research yeah I have looked at the history I mean you know the two books main books um, that, you know, kicked off this personality disorder would be Cleckley's um, Mask of Sanity and Robert Hare's Without Conscience. Uh, they both draw on, you know, fictional work quite a lot. In fact, they draw on fictional work a surprising amount for scientific books. But I think... I, th I think on, on one level, these these personality disorders... It's, it's a way of finding, finding a reason for crime. So this is criminology then retrofitted back over into personality disorders. And I think r right from the start, this is the wrong trajectory of logic to look at uh, a cause within an individual for crime or a violent crime is kind of the wrong direction. You ought to be asking a question for you know, social causes and economic causes. Mm. So do I agree with you know, this correlation between personality disorders and crime. No, I, not at all. And you mentioned that the the kind of founding tomes, the books that really first started looking at labelling someone a psychopath or a sociopath, they borrowed heavily from fictional characters. You in your book, so um, for anyone who's just tuned in, it's... Um, the psychopath factory how capitalism organizes empathy and you look predominantly at fictional characters as a way of understanding what a, soci a sociopath or a psychopath is and does why did you choose to look through that cultural lens was it because of you know the whole industry around this diagnosis started that way or did you just think it was the best guide that we had um it's almost a little bit of both 
in, in one way, I wanted to give a little nod to her and Cleckley, uh, you know, just to, you know, take up their praxis. But the other part of it is I, I didn't really want to look at supposedly real psychopaths because I don't think there are real psychopaths. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to conflate my concept of a psychopath with people's idea of crime and criminality. So that's why I didn't look at, at, at any you know, serial killers or you know, Ponzi, these Ponzi schemes, whatever. Like. So that's why I, 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 I stayed on you know, fiction and film because I think it's a character concept. I don't think it's a, a real person with a real problem. So it's a little bit of both actually. I wonder how um, how deep that runs because we're th we're talking about it in the term in terms of psychopathy and sociopathy, but I wonder if there are other sort of pathologies that have been diagnosed, like retrofit and retrofitted, and also through fiction. It's a there must be room for a whole field in that. I feel like there's a bit of a critique of psychology and other disciplines there. Yeah, <laughs> Freudian <laughs> analysis. I'm I'm thinking of that kind of that kind of stuff as well. Um, one thing that you touched on there about recognizing traits anyone can recognize a psychopathic trait in themselves you mentioned anyone doing a job that they don't want to be doing i think that leads you to look at some really interesting characters in terms of being psychopaths which we wouldn't necessarily imagine so for example in the book uh you mention um i think american psycho and things like that mm -hmm. definitely a very a good and obvious reference for anyone looking to find a psychopath in fiction. But then you also talk about people like Jimmy McNulty from The Wire. And that, again, is a much more normalised psychopath. And I found that very interesting to put that Jimmy person McNulty's in his terms. Jimmy a fascinating character for me because he, he cares a little bit too much and he acts on his own emotions a little bit too much. I mean, this argument is really Adam Kotzko's, but you know, part of it at least... But Jimmy McNulty, so he doesn't really think before he acts. He just wants to always do the right thing. He, you know, if he sees some social injustice, he jumps at the chance to put it right. But he ends up, you know, causing more harm than good. And so, you know, the curb your enthusiasm, you know, the Larry David problem of, you know, tempering what you really want to do, you know, maybe concealing your first impulse a little bit. Um, Jimmy McNulty should take that advice. Is that where we find things like Kirby enthusiasm and peep show so funny because actually they're a bit desperately sad that we have to behave that way I, I think I think we find cringe comedy funny you know for multiple reasons you know on, on multiple levels but I think you know probably the main one for me is that it it reaffirms why you bite your lip and why you curb your own enthusiasm in public because if you don't then you run into that awful, awkward, cringy situation that you know David Brent or Larry David would run into. So it kind of reaffirms why we act and perform a certain way most of the time. Because if we are perfectly honest, like uh, Alan Partridge or, or somebody like that, <laughs> but no, if, if you if you do do that, then you run into trouble and you you know you don't get anywhere in life. So obviously chip in if I have uh, misconstrued, but the. The, the main takeaway that I got from reading The Psychopath Factory is that capitalism, and kind of more specifically than that, the, the modern workplace, especially services industry, potentially um, for low-paid workers, frontline workers um, in particular, really shapes how we empathise with others or how we don't empathise with them. And what I wanted to kind of pitch you is, do you think that the condition of 
potentially being a psychopath is a modern condition or construct exactly and does that also kind of imply that capitalism is inherently bad so you're are you saying capitalism is not good in any way big (laughs) question you've got i've got a few things to to fork off there unsurprisingly there are a few things wrong with capitalism (laughs) (laughs) it's it's not good um the first part of the question is are you asking me if psychopathy as you know as a normalized personality mode is part and because of capitalism is that well is that I, the question the modern workplace you really focus on that in particular so people having to deliver services answer the phone customer relationship management you talk a lot about the the experience of being line managed by someone who pretends to be your friend and and that that type of um behavior pretending that you care in some situations and also trying not to care in others so you can get your job done more quickly is that does that mean that this is a modern way of behavior a modern type of character um yeah i i think it's more prevalent in contemporary life than before um I suppose I suppose I say that because I, I feel that the the leverage of productivity now is more social and more empathetic than ever. I think you know everybody's uh, boss is their friend. No one uses the term boss anymore. You know, it's, it's, you be on first name terms. And on the one hand, it it appears social. It appears that everybody sympathises and empathises with one another, and you know gets the job done. Whatever. But it can't be real empathy, can it? Because at the end of the day, you're only there to, you know, earn a bit of money. You know, would you be there if you suddenly, you know, won the lottery? No. So, you know, are you really best buddies with, you know, your your boss? Do you really empathise with them? I'm not so sure. So the thing that's interesting for me is capitalism's never been more social. It's never been more empathetic. Look at Innocent Smoothie. You know, look at the, you know, the current way of selling you things. It's you know, it's, it's very nice. You know, it's not the hard face of 80s capitalism anymore. But it's the performance of empathy. It's but the performance of conviviality, the performance of being in a team. So for me, that's, that's like the psychopath who, who smiles and says, oh, my God, you know, I know just how you feel. Totally, me too, me too. Because it's a, it's a performance and it's disingenuous. Can I um, pipe up here with, yeah. a, with a Me Too experience? <laughs> um, I was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, I used to work in a library and we had a two-day training seminar um, run by a mindfulness expert uh, called Floor Walking for Service Excellence where we were told that there are four categories of people and each one had a primary colour. Um, and we were told to greet people with our hands open and facing towards the sky um, and obviously with a smile and all of that. So there was there was... If we weren't already, we were all like quite, it was the French Institute as well. So maybe a little bit existential in its nature. Um, and so we're all, we're all like a little bit gloomy, perhaps as librarians. And so, so they got in this person to sort of essentially tell us to pipe up a little bit, be a little bit more, more happy towards the, well, we were told to call them clients as opposed to um, like, I don't know, members or they, something. They tried to Americanize the French. Yeah, we were having workforce. none of it. None I think that's that. what you're telling me. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but y- yeah, so you, you also wrote this um, uh, eight-page article about um, women in 
various TV and 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 film, um, and their characterization is deviating from the norm. Um, and in, and in that term, in terms of that, seen as could be seen as psychopaths. Um, so what what's the kind of key thing that you learned from having having analyzed that? The, just the the embedded sexism in personality disorders. I mean, th- there's obviously a political slant to personality disorders. Um, having many marital relations, uh, promiscuous sex, these are criteria for diagnosing psychopathy. And in and of themselves, you know, what's, what's wrong with them? You know, they're okay. Unless you have some strange right-wing family values agenda, probably the case. Um, I think... I think looking at the different examples of uh, supposed, you know, female psychopaths in film, you, n- you need to break down how how film works with protagonists and antagonists. In life, when we meet somebody, when we buy a coffee, we don't really know what somebody's like or what they're really thinking when they say, have a nice day, or when somebody turns up for a job interview and tells you they're passionate and enthusiastic about admin or whatever so you don't know you just kind of got to take it or you just accept it's you know normalized lying in film and television and and in and books too narrative gives you a privilege so you can see how a character interacts with peripheral characters but then there'll be a tell scene that tells you what they're really like so you know that for the rest of the film they're, they're conning another character or they're being manipulative they're being disingenuous whatever for male psychopaths in, in film and television, they tend to do something really, really bad to tell the viewer that they're, they're not all they, they seem. So apart from the obvious mirror scene and the you know, breaking fourth wall break, things like that, the, the tell scenes tend to be quite horrific, you know, like cannibalism or <coughs> killing something, but things you can't really mistake as being you know, good acts. For female psychopaths in film and literature, the, what, I, what I call the tell scenes are really quite subtle. And, and it's just a case of being a bit too equal to you know, the, the heteronormative counterpart. And in more than one film, there's a scenes of women going to bars in the hope of you know, picking up a partner for the night. And if a, you know, the male counterpart did that in a film, would that be significant enough to tell the viewer that there's something really wrong with them? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. No. What sort of gender assumptions are being taken in pitching these scenes where just a woman going out for the night by herself is somehow seen as significant, significant enough to tell the viewer that they're somehow a social deviant or they're a you know, manipulative psychopath or whatever. Mm. That's Really, that's my issue with these different asymmetrical depictions of psychopathy in the tell scene in film so i've got um a scene lined up here shall i play it it's from um the last seduction is there anything should i yes please um is there anything you want to say before i i play this clip um no i mean i'll just say it's a typical scene of a young independent woman going into a bar supposedly there's nothing wrong with that but i guess uh I guess there's a slant here with how with how blunt and rude she is with the bartender. She's just a bit too independent, and the scene is supposedly significant because of that. New Manhattan. I said, hey, pal, this ain't no drive-through. Do you believe some people? Hey, 
Hey. I know you hear me, pal. Anybody need anything down here? Everybody good? Good? You good? Jesus Christ. There's a girl got a suck around here to get a drink. <laughs> City trash, man. You don't think that. What do you see in that? It's maybe a new set of balls. Give me a minute. Um, so that was the, the first minute from the clip there. Um, and and there there was the line, uh, what does a girl have to suck around here to get a drink? Which um, you were saying, I actually haven't seen the full film, but you're saying that that is a scene where you understand that this woman is not uh, obeying regular codes of practice. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd call it a, a tell scene. And that, you know, she's just a bit too frank about everything um, to really fit into a you know, her gender role. Um, I'm saying that in quotation marks, you know. So, so yeah, I think, I think that scene, it's quite a long scene and it's, you know, significant enough in that it frames her character. You only see her in one scene before this and it's when she's fleeing an abusive um, husband or boyfriend. It, kind of understandable. Um, but this scene really cements her as being, a, you know, social deviant, bit dangerous, bit of a psycho. And in your article, um, you mentioned that there's not just this double standard of, of women are meant to not meant to be equal with what men like they're not allowed to pick people up um, but there's also a double double standard could you explain that a little bit more okay so that's um yeah it's it's a cruel catch-22 that emerges in what I've started calling men's rights films but I mean I don't think there's much of a connection between them but they they seem to they seem to elaborate this anxiety that, you know, if, if a woman is adhering to the ideal of what a woman should be, the absurd ideal, you know, sort of perhaps being a little bit too passive, a little bit too weak, you know, the absurd ideal, then they're also out to get you. And you see this in something like Knock Knock, where women they turn up at this, um, this architect's home. They really live up. They, they do what I call, you know, playing the girl. So they live up to this sort of damsel in distress thing, but they're only doing that so that they can, you know, get one over on the, you know, the poor unwitting guy at the end of it. So, th I mean, this is a catch twenty-two. So there's the tell scene of being too independent, not conforming enough. But then when these characters do conform, th then they're femme fatales. They're, you know, they're seductresses, they're temptresses, they're conniving. It's all a trap, and yeah, I mean, deeply political and problematic. I find that interesting um, in the sense that it really equates masculinity with certain types of behaviour and the idea that if a woman acts in a certain way, it makes her too masculine rather than feminine and that is automatically equated with maybe aggressive and violent. Is there fundamentally a problem with talking about masculinity in those terms as well? I'm surprised more well, men don't get offended. is a problem. I, and I'm you, surprised men don't get offended yeah. about that more. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, masculinity is a problem for stop men. These are, you know, these are gender constructs. These are <laughs> silly ideals. Uh, they don't reflect what people are like, obviously. Um, but to flip it round and look at the masculinity angle, you see it time and time again in in thriller films of the 80s and 90s. If there's going to be somebody who's a, a serial killer they're probably going to be sexually ambiguous or closeted 
or at least a bedwetter, or something other than the sort of heteronormative ideal of the red-blooded jock. You know, you see it played out with male uh, sociopaths and psychopaths in films too. Some kind of repressed violence, which you can't. Uh, well, I, I'm deal not even with. sure it's repressed violence. It's just you know the, the amount of serial killers who tend to be uh, sexually ambiguous, just not you know easily fitting into that that heteronormative category. You'd be surprised in that they're ten a penny. I, th- I think it's more just uh, scripts and you know opportunities to show a character's true nature, what sort of things would be significant for, to show a true character's nature. They're informed by kind of culturally conservative, vaguely right-wing, you know, pro-family politics. I guess it's an easy shorthand to say, especially in the 80s or the 90s, say like this person is not someone that you would um, recognise in your friendship circle um, and therefore we're going to assign them with all of these traits that you do not see as, uh, like, normative. It's shorthand, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. like, in terms of, if, if especially in terms of horror, I'm thinking of Freddy Krueger, um, is that Nightmare on Elm Street, which yeah. I don't really watch a lot of horror, but... Um, um, and I'm not, I'm not sure how that character is portrayed, but there's definitely an idea of, for example, he's disfigured. So for some reason, disfigurement equals evil person, which yeah. is hugely mm. problematic in a, in a lot of ways. So what about the programmes and the characters, films um, and so on, that actually portray characters and maybe characters with what we would term in the context of this discussion, psychopathic behaviours? What about the ones that do it really well? Because I'm interested in the the scenes and the characters that you think are really well drawn. And I know that in your um, in your essay, um, Femme Fatale's Female Psychopaths and Narrative Science, which we've kind of been um, delving into, uh, you mentioned one programme which I'm a big fan of called The Four, and okay. you reference uh, the character of uh, the police uh, woman, Stella Gibson. Yeah. And that's a really interesting programme because of how they draw the the so-called good and bad characters. Can you go into why you highlighted that particular ins- instance? Okay, so I think Stella in, a few, in uh, The Fall is rendered a, a little bit more, with a little bit more nuance than most uh, female characters on television. But th- there's it still falls into that trap of showing something that's, you know, supposedly a social deviance mm. in order to make her seem more interesting or to draw draw up a sort of double life. So even though, you know, she might, uh, you know, with some people in the police force, you know, play on her, you know, femininity or, or the appeal of that, um, they also show her being bisexual out of, our, out of hours. And I worry at the... I just worry at the directorial assumption that thinks that's significant enough to tell tell us a lot about her character, because really it shouldn't be anything. It should have no import whatsoever about what she's like. I I think it's an interesting point. What um, I find a bit difficult is imagining how you can arrive at a character or a plot that doesn't fall into any of these traps. Is that do you, is that possible well, at the moment? I mean, I think if if you want to show a, you know, unempathic and uh, supposedly violent psychopathic character, uh, you could just just remove the 
the sort of strange politicization of mm. sexuality yeah. or gender expectations. Mm. So that opening scene in House of Cards where Francis or, or Frank, the irony of that, that mm. uh, nickname Frank because he's anything but, in the opening scene you see him kill a dog. So you know, you know, he's a, li he's a little bit cold. You know, you know he's, he's not very squeamish or he's you know, lacking something. I couldn't do that even if I... Even if I had to, if the dog was suffering, I don't think I could do it. Um, but that, you know, apart from animal politics and, you know, the dog was suffering anyway, th I think that's a fair enough way to show that somebody's a, a psychopathic type fictional character. But I think straying into showing them as having some sort of facial disfigurement and that makes them a serial killer or showing them being too in independent and that makes them a psychopath, that's where I have a problem. Um, I think that's all we have time for this evening. For yeah. all of this, you want to go on the Repeater Books website. Um, so uh, Tristan's book is uh, The Psychopath Factory, How Capitalism Organises Empathy. Um, so go and check that out. Um, this is Very Loose Women. Uh, we are on Twitter at VLW Radio. Uh, you can find our podcast um, on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, and all of the rest of it. Uh, Very Loose Women. Just type it in. Um, and... Uh, next up, Global Globules with Bacon Face. Um, <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks very much, Tristan. You've been a fantastic guest. Thanks, it's been good. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>